The History Channel original podcast. History This Week, September 11th, 2001. All available votes. This is the United States Coast Guard. Anyone who want to help with the evacuation of Lower Manhattan, report to Governor's Island. I'm Sally Helm. It can be easy to forget that Manhattan is an island. Even when you're right by the water. There's traffic, tour buses full of kids in matching t-shirts, commuters rushing past you, heads down, running late. You can hear seagulls and waves in the background, but barely. I was by the water recently, talking to Captain Rick Thornton. He drives a ferry boat every day, the commuter run, Weehawken, New Jersey, to Midtown Manhattan. He's been in this job for decades. And as we were chatting about his work, we kept getting interrupted. And then, uh... Ooh, crashing. Yes, sounds so, uh... It's the romance of the sea, you know, they, you know, that slapping of a sailboat halyard in, in a gentle cove in Bermuda. And then you got, you know, an 800-foot barge ramming into another 800-foot barge. So. In this case, it was just the sound of the dock moving as a ferry came in to pick up its next load of passengers. When we met up, Thornton had just gotten off his eight-hour shift, 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. Eight hours of runs, eight minutes each way there are occasionally things that break up this routine. You know, you always have the crew members maybe running up saying, we got a paddleboarder over there, or you got two jet skiers right behind you. So it's a relaxing job, but you also have to be very diligent. Anything today? Anything interesting happen? Um, no, nothing too exciting. Uh, we had one kid, a little little boy, who was about five years old. He's on the pier, and he's like, oh, he looks, he's so excited. I can't wait to go. You can see the look on his face. He gets on the boat. His face is turning red. Tears are starting to well up. His dad drags him up to the top deck, and now the kid is bawling his eyes out. I mean, he's literally screaming in terror. Probably should have just stayed in the main cabin, and uh, all the passengers got to hear on the nice, quiet, relaxing transit was, I mean, and that's, that's not even an exaggeration. It was so loud I could hear it from the pilot house. That was in the morning. And as Thornton and I were standing on the dock together, people started getting on the ferry to go back to New Jersey. And... There's the kid right there, but see the kid in the red shorts? That's him? That's him, yeah. I think he went into the main cabin. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. But if things go south again... It's only an eight-minute commute, so it's not bad. Go across the river. This is how Captain Thornton's day usually goes. A few little excitements. Maybe a passenger dressed in a weird costume for work or a jet skier trying to jump your wake. That's the extent of things. Usually. One day 20 years ago, a clear, sunny day, he's doing his normal run from Weehawken to Midtown when he hears something strange. A plane flying really low over his head. And he thinks, Hey, it's a clear day. Why are they so low? Sometimes you'll hear jets very, very low on a uh, very cloudy, overcast, snowy day, and they'll be on a low approach pattern for better visibility. But it was definitely not because of the weather. It felt like it was coming straight down the Hudson. And why is it happening? You know, you just file it away. It's like, that's odd. That's weird. You know, but you got to still keep doing what you're doing, uh, which is, you know, piloting and navigating a ferry boat full of passengers. 
you went about your business until you know you saw the uh, the impact and the explosion. The first plane hits the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan at 8:46 a.m. Captain Thornton thinks it must be some terrible accident. But then, at 9.03, the second plane hits. And that's when we pulled a 180-degree turn and we just headed south down the river to uh, the World Trade Center area. Captain Rick Thornton would soon be joined by dozens of other boats, civilian, commercial, and military, to rescue survivors from the site of the attack. With roads and trains shut down, it was one of the only ways to escape the island of Manhattan. Today, the maritime rescue on 9-11. It's been described as the greatest seaborne evacuation in history, larger than Dunkirk during World War II. How, on a chaotic, terrifying day, did this impromptu rescue come together? And what happened to Captain Rick Thornton after he turned his ferry boat towards the scene of the attack? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Rick Thornton was pretty young when he set his sights on a maritime career. Me and my younger brother, when we were kids, sitting on Coney Island Beach, we'd watch tugboats go by and ships out on the horizon. And we made a promise. We said, that's what we're going to do. He spent his childhood mostly on land, though, in Brooklyn. Captain America says, I'm just a kid from Brooklyn. And sure enough, that's exactly what I was. After Thornton graduated from high school, he enlisted in the Navy. He was stationed at Pearl Harbor, responsible for bringing VIPs to the site of the USS Arizona, which sank during the attack in 1941. Thornton says you could still smell the oil leaking up from the sunken ship. Then he worked on a tugboat, also at Pearl Harbor. And as part of his Navy training, Thornton learned survival skills, rescue techniques, how to stay calm in tough situations. Doing what needs to be done to accomplish the mission, even if it hazards, you know, possibly your own life, your own vessel. So I think that's ingrained in you. And I was 18, 19, 20 years old. Um, so it becomes part of your DNA at that point, that, that training. After leaving the Navy, Thornton got his captain's license. Um, worked on tugboats for a while. I worked on dinner boats for a while. Then he got a job at New York Waterway, which was at the time called Port Imperial Ferry. It's a company that transports commuters across New York Harbor. Matter of fact, when I first joined the company... In my mind, I said, oh, this will be like a cool job to do for about two or three years and then move on to something else. But that's where he stayed. He says the job does get to be routine. But when you're a Navy-trained captain and you're on a boat, you stay vigilant. Thornton told me, even when he's just out fishing with friends for fun. I'm always having an eye out for uh, obstructions, for hazards, for other vessels. Somehow or another, they always said, hey, why don't you take the wheel? So I, oh, even on my day off, I'm always somehow <laughs> driving the boat. 
He's like that on the ferry, too, keeping his eye out for danger. He says it matters. A lot of people are on the ferry for the first time. Some of them are nervous. They might have children with them. So even just, you know, doing a routine docking, you have to tap that dock just as casually as possible because you do not want to have a domino effect of people getting knocked over. You don't want to injure anybody, even if it's a twisted ankle or somebody spilled coffee. So you're watching the current, watching the tide. And sometimes you find yourself up against something really serious. In February of 1993, a truck bomb exploded in the parking garage underneath the North Tower of the World Trade Center. The attack killed six people and injured over a thousand. Thornton was on the water when it happened. I remember long lines of people flooding West 39th Street Ferry Terminal. And so all of a sudden, you're going from 10 or 15 people to 50, 100, 200, 1,000. Everybody's just leaving. And you're like, what the heck is going on? You didn't have a smartphone in 93. You know, you didn't have a radio tuned in to uh, 1010 Winds or anything like that. And then it was just word of mouth from maybe some company officials or maybe the people who were getting on the boat telling you what was going on. And, you know, everybody handles things differently. Um, you get some people who are crying and screaming and hysterical. Maybe their wife is also working in the city and they, they can't get a hold of each other. Things of that nature really will put people into a panic mode. Pretty soon, Port Imperial Ferry, the company Thornton worked for, was sending its ferries down to help. 50,000 people were evacuated from the World Trade Center complex that day. It was, at that point, the largest rescue in New York City history. Thornton was there. And he said, after that... I think it was uh, always part of our subconscious that, uh, you know, we might have to do this in some other worst-case scenario. Eight and a half years later, as Thornton and everyone else tells it, it started off as a normal day. September 11th, 2001. The sun is out. It's clear as can be. Literally, it's just one of those days where you're telling yourself, wow, this is the best job in the world. Thornton was piloting a boat called the Henry Hudson, taking almost exactly the same route he does today, Weehawken to Midtown. You know, you remember things in bits and pieces, and sometimes you swear you remember something happening, and maybe it's just a false memory, but certain things are ingrained in your head without a shadow of a doubt. At around 8.45 a.m., Thornton hears that low-flying jet. And then... From his view at the top of the ferry, he sees a plane flying towards the twin towers of the World Trade Center. Just this blur go into the north side of the North Tower. Something you'll never forget. You know, you want to believe maybe it wasn't a jetliner. I was running through my little mental Rolodex of what types of planes... It might have been without being necessarily loaded with passengers. Maybe it was a cargo aircraft. You know, maybe it's a movie. You know, <laughs> maybe it's some sort of special effect thing that nobody told you about. So, you know, you're you're trying to tell yourself what it might have been. At this point, it was a reasonable assumption that this was some kind of horrible accident, but nothing more. Thornton drops his passengers off in New Jersey and turns back towards the city. No one boards his boat in Manhattan. Most workers won't be commuting back until later, so he starts heading over to New Jersey with just his crew. That's when the second plane hits. 
my brain instantly said, this is some sort of concerted, focused, and uh, coordinated attack. I didn't report into the port operations people. I didn't radio anybody. I didn't call anybody on my cell phone. Well, I think I went into this complete um, hyper-focused rescue mode, and uh, I just told my crew, we need to get down there immediately. Wow. What, what do you remember feeling at that moment? My heart was racing. Uh, I cranked up all the uh, marine radios. Everybody was talking at once. So you really had to keep your wits about you, and you kind of pushed any panic, any fear, any shock, all to the back of your mind. Thornton actually ignores an initial order from the Coast Guard. They were actually saying, the Port of New York is now closed. New York Waterway, uh, New York traffic, sir, the port is closed. All vessels should secure, should tie up, should leave. Return to your port, return to your port at this time. But remembering what happened in 93, Thornton thinks it's only a matter of time before they tell us all to go down there. I'll just be the first one on scene, you know, before being told what to do. So it was full speed ahead, and we traveled, you know, about one mile down river to the site of the second impact. Were, were you afraid to go down to what was clearly the scene of an attack? Like, were you worried that another attack could happen? Uh, in the back of my mind, yes. Um, I mean, it was there, you know, and I'm not, you know, I, I referenced Captain America, but, you know, I am not a uh, Marvel cartoon superhero. He said he had his reservations, like any reasonable person would. But, um, you know, you're also a ferryboat captain, and uh, I had a boat that holds 400 people, and I knew that there was people in danger, people in a very stressful situation. And so he goes towards it with his crew and his boat. He sees smoke and then, through it, fire. As he moves closer, he sees what he thinks is people throwing chairs out of the windows. But then he realizes what it actually is. The terrifying, surreal sight of people jumping out of the buildings. He can also see people on the streets heading towards the water. They were leaping into the Hudson River and swimming away from Manhattan. So as our ferry is speeding down towards the scene, we're seeing heads bobbing in the water, swimming, waving their arms. And a lot of boats were just passing by because a person's head bobbing in the water is very, very small when you're looking up at two 1,000-foot towers that are burning. But Thornton's crew spots two people, puts down the rescue ladder, pulls them on board. And my first thought was to put them back on shore So I I pulled my ferry in, and my first docking was not at a ferry terminal, but at the stone seawall that surrounds the lower part of Manhattan. There's no actual dock there, but as he gets closer, Thornton can see crowds. There's literally thousands of panicked people in front of us. And now it's like being the last lifeboat on the Titanic. Suddenly, everybody sees some sort of saving grace. Nobody asked where you guys are going. They just started crawling all over this, like, five-foot-high fence. The Henry Hudson officially holds 400 people, but a few extra won't sink it. And Thornton tells his crew to let the crowd stream on board until the boat is fully out of room. 
There was a woman with a broken leg. She just basically tumbled over the railing. She landed on uh, my deckhand. There was people passing over handicapped people. There was a woman with a seeing eye dog that was just being handed over like a, like a surfboard. Above people's heads, like four men grabbed her and just passed her over the railing to our boat. Thornton says there might have been five or 600 people on the boat. And there were still thousands more on shore. So I got on the loudspeaker and I said, don't worry, we will be back. We are coming back for you. Do not panic, we will be back. Thornton's company is now telling its captains to drop people at the closest New Jersey docks where there would be emergency personnel standing by. So he heads that way. As I was going across the river, everybody's on their cell phone. Everybody's screaming, crying, praying. It's like a whole din of of voices and and tones and languages. And one guy's voice just rang out, they're going to collapse. I don't know who he was, if he was some sort of super duper brilliant architect, uh, building engineer, or he was just a guy who was scared that now these buildings had been burning for quite a while. I said to myself, this guy's going to cause a panic. I got, you know, 400, 500 people packed in here. We're literally maybe a, a few hundred yards from the South Tower, and it collapsed right in front of us. And, um, it, it always chokes me up to this day. My first thought was, there's thousands of people in there. There's rescuers in there. What about the other tower? And uh, all of the th- these things are hitting you at the same time. I remember making uh, a quick sign of the cross and saying uh, like a two-second prayer, even though I'm not overly religious. I just made a quick sign of the cross and uh, continued on with, uh, with getting my people to the Hoboken Terminal. He makes it across the river, a trip he's taken thousands of times, though this couldn't be further from a normal commute. People, as they're getting off the boat, they were saying, well, how much was the ticket? And, you know, their their mind is trying to focus on, I I got a ferry ride, I need to pay for a ticket. We're like, it's free, it's free, it's free, it's a rescue. And people were saying, God bless you, and... Excuse me. Uh, God bless you, and thank God you are here. And what are you going to do now? Some of them were saying, as you know, now there's one tower still burning. There's all this smoke and um, and haze and soot. And we said, well, we're going back in. And they said, like, what? Are you guys crazy? Don't you want to go home? And we said, yeah, we do. But uh, we have to rescue more people. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. As Thornton and his crew drive back to Manhattan, they're passing through a strange cloud. It's not just smoke. It's debris. It's ash. It's soot. It's grit. At around this point, a message from the Coast Guard comes over the radio. It's now famous. All available boats. This is the United States Coast Guard. Anyone who wants to help with the evacuation of Lower Manhattan, report to Governor's Island. So now you've got every boat converging on Manhattan, coming from every direction, every possible speed, every type of vessel. On recordings made of the radio chatter that day, you can hear these boats reporting in. Pleasure Craft, 21 foot, no name, standing by. There was speedboats, there was sailboats, there was fishing boats, and tugboats galore, and they were all ghostly apparitions when you could see something. The cloud of debris has descended on the harbor, making it very difficult to navigate. We almost got struck by a police boat that went by us with zero visibility at about, uh, you know, 50 miles an hour. The radar blips were just converging on each other. Thornton pulls into Pier 11 off of Wall Street to pick up another group of survivors. People are walking like the, you know, these uh, walking ghosts. They're coming out of this dust. Some of them are just ripping their clothes off and getting onto the boat naked. The crew and, the, and people are just giving them clothes off their back. As he pulls back onto the open water, everyone on board hears another terrible sound. The second, second tower collapses now. And <laughs> Thornton says, for some reason, it sounded louder this time. He felt like his mind had somehow protected him from fully experiencing the first collapse. You're blocking off the most horrific thing in your life, you know, so you could still function as a human being, still do your job. The second one, now I think you're, you're you know, you're hearing, you smell. All your senses have been, you know, awakened to uh, level 10. But Thornton keeps doing his job, crossing the river from New York to New Jersey and back. At a certain point in the day, first responders start hosing off his passengers when they disembark on the New Jersey side. There are worries that they might be covered with some kind of toxic substance like asbestos. At another point, he learns that a Navy boat, the USS Thunderbolt, has come to the area to defend the harbor if there's another attack. In the afternoon, he gets a call that there are federal agents in Manhattan who need to be picked up by boat, and he goes to get them. They said they were Secret Service. They had uh, the dangling credentials around their neck. He overhears them talking on the ferry, saying that there were other planes involved in the attack, but that the president is safe. Up until then, he'd had really no idea what was going on in the outside world. The maritime evacuation of Lower Manhattan lasts the entire day. Thornton can only guess how many people he carried on his boat. Since the boat holds 400, we'll just go with 400. I did about uh, 20 trips that day. So 20 times 400 is, uh, what, 8,000? And the Henry Hudson was only one of 150 different vessels that participated, crewed by over 800 mariners. What was it like to see so many people, so many boats around you, like all engaged in the same thing? It was the um, it was the 
The scariest and the proudest moment that I ever had as a, as a mariner, I saw everybody helping. Uh, the Naval Academy sailing team had sailed up from Annapolis. You know, they have this great dark navy blue and they're all 37-footers and they all have these great names like courageous and vigilant and heroic or whatever. You saw everybody, civilians, military, police, coast guard, commercial guys, all working in concert together to do whatever they could to help rescue people. In total, over 500,000 people were rescued from the site of the attack. Over 2,600 were killed. Two coordinated attacks in Pennsylvania and Washington, D.C. raised the death toll on that day to nearly 3,000. Thornton stayed out on the water for around 11 hours before his day ended. I just remember getting off the boat, throwing away most of my clothes before I got into my Jeep and driving home. There, he sees footage and news coverage about what he's been living through all day. He has trouble sleeping that night. He's still full of adrenaline. And the next morning, he's back on the water. There are no commuters that day, but Thornton carries first responders and supplies to Ground Zero. In the coming days, he transports Mayor Rudy Giuliani, a group of U.S. senators, and families of victims who died in the attacks. Regular ferry service starts up again about a week later. That same eight-minute trip, but in a very changed world. About a year after the attacks, Rick Thornton's Naval Reserve Unit was called up to active duty. He was stationed aboard an ammunition ship, ferrying supplies between the U.S. mainland and naval bases and ships throughout the Pacific. When his tour finished, Thornton went right back to the ferry boat, where he's been ever since. Sometimes, still, a passenger will stop him as they get off the boat and say, hey, you were the person who dropped me off in Hoboken on 9-11, or your boat pulled me out of the water. He says, you never know when you'll get a reminder of that day. You know, I'm watching uh, maybe um, a building collapse scene in um, in an Avengers movie, and I'll have to look away. So a lot of that stuff I cannot watch because it just reminds me it's way too close to the real thing. But even though he'll never get those images out of his mind, he says he's glad he was there. If I had the day off, I was on vacation in, you know, Hawaii or Florida or what have you, I would feel like I should be there. I'm so fortunate that I was able to be there that day, be able to do something that helped some people and uh, maybe maybe save a life or two or 500, I don't know, who were at the foot of the tower before they collapsed. You know, I don't tell myself that or pat myself on the back. I just know that uh, I'm a New Yorker and I can look back with great pride, patriotism, love and, uh, you know, real humanity that I was able to do something that I never could have conceived of when I was sitting on the beach in Coney Island as a 10-year-old playing in the sand, looking at tugboats go by. You know, I never would have conceived that I'd ever be put in that situation or have to respond like that. It's easy to forget that Manhattan is an island. But on 9-11, it felt very clear to those people who were crowded up against the river, watching Rick Thornton's ferry boat as a little dot out there on the water, getting bigger and bigger as it approached the shore.
Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. This episode was produced by Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Julia Press, and me, Sally Helm. McKamey Lynn is our senior producer, and our editor and sound designer is Bill Moss. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.